Welcome to Impact Unicorns, the podcast where you meet inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies. And now, here is your host, Dr. Injernil Ghosh, award-winning author, investor, and advisor to global leaders. Well, Christian, it's great to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, Indranil. Christian, I'm really delighted to have you on this episode because one of the topics um, that is so difficult to address in the decarbonization debate is heating issues, you know, um, decarbonized heating, not just of residential and commercial buildings, but actually of industrial facilities, because so much heat is used in industry. And it's uh, obviously powered by hydrocarbon-based sources of energy at the moment. Now, you've been doing some amazing things with your company, Energy Nest, to help to decarbonize that very difficult problem. So we'll definitely get into that later in the show. But first of all, you know, I'd love to know a bit more about Christian Thiel or Dr. T, as your new moniker seems to be. Um, <laughs> tell us about, you know, your journey as a, as a professional and as, as, a, as an impact entrepreneur. My journey, yeah. Um, where to start? I think first up, I always wanted to become a medical doctor. Um, uh, actually, since I was a child and, you know, I had my university slot already booked but then I joined um, the German military that was back in 1996 and they became became part of the first NATO mission ever before that the German army was always doing uh, UN stuff so this NATO mission was basically to enforce the Dayton agreement uh, ultimately to bring uh, uh, peace to the ex-Yugoslavia region secure the first uh, democratic elections provide food to those who didn't have food etc to cut a long story short, um, while I was deployed there with my paratrooper unit, um, we did a lot of teamwork and joint missions with um, uh, comrades from, from other nations, uh, Canada, US, Norway, Sweden, Belgium, but also Russia. And what I quickly noticed is that I very much enjoy um, international teamwork and uh, international teamwork in international set- settings uh, on missions that really matter. And that kind of like became my new uh, prerogative then to to work in such settings. And I guess that kicked off um, uh, me venturing into the business arena, ultimately switching college careers then before having ever started to study medicine, but to then switch to to a business degree and to combine that business degree with a lot of internships abroad. Um, uh, First of all, to, to, to harvest on the opportunity to learn internationally, but also to acquire some languages. So I did uh, internships in Brazil, Argentina, South Africa, studied for my bachelor in, in Ireland, the master's back in, in Germany, um, um, yeah, US obviously, uh, et cetera. And that kind of like became a companion that international set up uh, throughout, throughout the years. And um, um, I think, you know, you know, after college, it starts with a career. So I went to big corporate, automotive corporate, which was great learning, great products, etc. On the flip side, I quickly noticed that, oh, you, you're just a small, tiny wheel of a big machine. And although um, this is great if you can identify with a product back at the time, um, you notice that your, your freedom to operate um, is very limited. So what I did then is basically after this automotive 
career. Um, I changed into investment banking and then into consulting. And then by consulting, I, again, working abroad, um, I really found my passion for energy transition topics, be it deployment of renewables or uh, solving grid transmission issues or being at industrial sites and being exposed to all the energy in inventories uh, in such an industrial site. Um, then I basically, out of consulting, then transitioned into uh, the renewable energy. So I, I joined a uh, northern Germany-based wind turbine manufacturer. Um, and that was a lot of fun because at the time wind was, I mean, it was just after, I think, Germany declared then um, the exit from nuclear power, um, full steam ahead, so to say, on, on wind turbine. Wind became a commodity already in Europe. And that was really about tapping into new markets um, very exciting. So I was leading the, amongst other departments, the new markets team, et cetera. And for some reason then, you know, the new topic came up, energy storage. Okay, the PV and wind is really commodity already. Um, now it's about story. And as it happens in life, um, I was approached um, about this opportunity to join a very young company, uh, startup, uh, just two years old, three years old in, in, in Norway called Energy Nest. And a very small team back in the day um, financed by handful private investors, and it just seemed right. So I went to Norway, met the people, met the team, and saw, wow, this is a great opportunity, but there's lots of work to do. But this is this is fun because the people are fun. They're mission-driven. Um, you can contribute with your very own skill set that you have acquired in the corporates, consulting, investment banking, and renewables, and really help this, this, this theme of energy nest to move forward. Yes, and this is now, a decision I had taken seven years ago, um, and here we are. <laughs> uh, here we are, having come, you know, quite some steps further. And and really, as you said, in Renil, you know, this topic of heat. I think you know we're we're just starting to to awake a sleeping giant, um, and and you know the, the giant has a very ugly side to it, uh, and we're here to to heal this. And this, 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 this ugly side to the giant industrial heat is basically that a lot of this, so the, the vast majority, um, is generated by fossil fuels. And that needs to change. And we're here to, to help facilitate that change as one of the technologies um, that could be a key enabler for, for solving the industrial heat problem. Interesting, uh, you know, some themes coming out from your discussion of your, your personal journey. You're clearly someone who loves to explore. You can see that in the thread about uh, international exploration and expo exposure. You're learning about you know, different parts of the world, different cultures, I'm sure. Um, also, your um, desire to, to work in teams um, that span boundaries, to bring together talents and perspectives that um, you know, lead to innovative solutions. I can see how all of this you know, led you to um, become an impact entrepreneur. But also there was a period in your career where you seem to be honing your basic skills you know, in investment, banking, and consulting in industry. How did that tipping point occur from working in a large corporation, yes, where you're a small uh, wheel in a larger machine, but where you're learning so much in a, in a structured way to the more ambiguous, amorphous journey of building a company in an industry that even doesn't have any rules, perhaps, uh, at the time. Yeah. So from that sort of structured, more 
you know, definitive pathway to something that is so um, uh, open of blue skies, if you like. Now, good question. I think it's a combination of three things, perhaps. I mean, first up, I was born and raised in East Germany. And, um, you know, when the wall came down and the Iron Curtain opened and on, on the German side, I was 12 years old. So I was young enough to adapt to a new society. But um, I think what I also inherited is uh, uh, memories to a system where individuality and out-of-the-box thinking was not necessarily appreciated. That's number one. I think this is the explanation why I have such a curious mindset, mm -hmm. uh, uh, part of it. I mean, there's also some intrinsic curiosity, but I think you know, being able to not see and visit family in a different country because just it was on the Western side, being spied upon as a family, et cetera. I mean, that, that leaves a taste, right? And, and it's kind of like um, probably deeply impacting the way you perceive the world and the way you want to go out once you have a chance to, to explore the world. Um, second is um, I then followed a very safe route, which is going with big corporates. Um, you know, it's, it's great because some corporates do a fantastic job um you 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 work you know with peers that are like-minded um uh, you, you're part of a much wider thing than yourself on the other hand um you in my experience you do not always get the benefits of exploring your limits really of course you're being pushed and there's reviews etc but what's really intrinsically motivating you and are you being your best in uh, putting your, not only your skills, but your personality um, uh, onto the line each day to become a better person and help to make things better. And, and that was not really fostered. So in my point, and I was then, you know, after the corporate second aspect, now the third aspect is um, I experienced quite late. So in my mid-30s, when I switched into the entrepreneurial track, where I would really say I, I do entrepreneurial work. Um, that uh, was quite a surprise that when you really have a conviction for something, you put your resources behind it and you join with like-minded people that you can do much more than you thought you could do. And that is not just a thrilling experience, but it becomes also an addiction. You want to push the limit out and out and out and out where no one has really been. And this is what you alluded to probably, you know, the exploratory path that I follow. It's really these things coming together. And, you know, my wish for, other people who want to go that route is really, I, I very much hope that people can do this much sooner than I have done. And obviously there's no limit, even if you discover at 50 or 55, you're an entrepreneur, I mean, go for it. You know, if that's your setting and that makes you happy, just go for it. It's never too late. But ideally people can come into positions to making this determination much, much earlier. That's one thing. And the, the other thing I want to say is even now at Energy Nest, for instance, we're, we're a small team. We're currently I think we are 14, but we hired, I think we just issued four new contracts and we want to grow within one year to 40, 40. So it's quite a journey. But given the setup of our particular company, what we also do is we, we don't have a super strict hierarchy where everything is determined in terms of a job description. So we look for still entrepreneurs that join our company and take responsibilities for areas you know where i'm not an expert or my cfo or cto are not an expert so people who are exploring with us to 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 you know uh pave the way towards you know in our case decarbonize industrial heat particularly and flexibilize power generation so 
So it's uh, it's really about, I think, in essence, having a self-reflection, daring, um, daring to do something different. And then very important, and that's probably the most important enabler, finding a team set, uh, a setting that helps you grow and enables you even more. Because, you know, some people are, you know, um, Wunderkinder and can do that themselves. And, you know, of, of they do fantastic one-man shows and, 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 and gain a lot of success. That's great. Uh, a lot of us aren't really that, but we are stronger when we are in a community and that can be a team. And finding that team of like-minded people is just such a great asset. Uh, there's so much energy for yourself, but also for others in this. This is really what I see probably each week at work that one plus one is three or four or five, not just two. And 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 that can become an addiction, I have to tell you. It's, uh, you know, if you if you exceed your wildest imaginations or, or dreams and push something forward and see it gain traction, that is something. And that is a big part of, to me, what is uh, life about next to love for your family, um, you know, and, and, and being happy. But I think happiness comes to large part from, from that, from seeing what impact you can deliver um, once you make up your mind, find like-minded people and, and, and gather just to put resource to a certain task. What you described uh, reminds me a lot of an elite team athlete. And this is a theme that's coming through in a lot of the interviews that I'm doing on, on this show. This idea of um, working every day to make yourself um, a better version of yourself, continuous improvement. But then not only that, um, making yourself from one to two to three so that and then working in a community where one plus one equals three, but then the following day, three plus three equals 15. This incredible synergy that you're able to, to bring about in your team is um, a real key to success. And this ability to visualize a dream and then make it in reality. Okay, <laughs> in reality. Tell us a little bit as a CEO, how you transmit this from your own experience into the team around you how, how this culture of continuous improvement working towards a mission making a purpose and a dream into reality how does that manifest itself in day-to-day -day things that you do yeah i think i think what i see is um that there's also a transition taking place depending on when you if, if you found a company or when you join it so for instance when i joined energy nest it was a lot about doing it yourself and bringing that skill set, you know, from, from consulting, for instance, or banking. Like, okay, what are, are the key analysis that we do? How do we set up a project? Who leads the project, etc. And 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 when I came in, we were so small that you know all the all the project related and economic stuff that was under my leadership. And I I try to role model from uh, from the front line, so to say, right. Obviously, that changes um, at some point. And the way I would see it now is that I'm probably more of a um, football coach. Because as we grow the team, and we will continue to grow the team, but it's more like you have a team and you can't do everything yourself. And you shouldn't because you're not the best expert. But what you can do is to keep the overview and motivate people. And, you know, there's the goal getters who are really eager, very competitive, and they score your goals. That would typically sales folks or project development people. On the other hand, you have the goal keeper, 
who just needs to you know keep the goal clean ideally you know and those those are your key engineers really it's not about scoring goals their mission is very different and their motivation needs to be a very different one than for the goal getters so as we grow along i think it's very much about um making sure that you you know have you have the right talents on your transfer list early so that you and really enhance your team uh, and, 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 and grow your football team. But then it's very much about seeing that um, uh, people feel very, not comfortable, but challenged and supported in their positions. And obviously part of that is also that you, you know, at the beginning of the season, you say, okay, guys, we're in this to win the Champions League, obviously. So the mission needs to be very clear to everyone. And then you help people basically uh, perform daily at their best, um, and also, you know, when they're injured, you take them out, you give them rest to heal, um, uh, you give them coaching or training, uh, and you put someone else in the position. So, I mean, that's all that's all part of it. So, I think there's a transition, and 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 you need to probably, as an entrepreneur and CEO, be able to play a broad facet. You need to be this person who can go in and do it yourself, and also show how to lead, and that you're not too precious to execute tasks yourself. Work late nights, compile documents, calculate models. Uh, uh, entertain customers, engage customers, find investors, all of this. But also as you go along, you, you, get a, you will get experts. And, um, you know, there's this famous saying that, you know, people, you know, you should always hire people who are better than you. And it can be somewhat uncomfortable. But on the other hand, if you make the right choice and work with these people who are better than you, um, it helps, you know, you will not rest yourself. You will learn. You will feel challenged. You want to contribute even more. And this is just a firework then that sets off. Um, and it's hard work, but it's very, very rewarding. If you're enjoying this episode of Impact Unicorns, don't forget to visit us on the Apple Podcast mobile app or iTunes and leave a rating and review. Your feedback is essential to help us bring the most relevant impact venture stories to the show. The video version of the show can be found on YouTube by searching under Impact Unicorns. Please like, subscribe, and hit the bell to receive notifications of new shows. Let's switch gears to talking about the company, uh, Energy Nest. You described a little bit of how you came to it, how you've been growing it, and this wonderful image of the transition from player to coach as you lead the company. Um, tell us a little bit about what actually the company does and what problem it's solving uh, in industrial heating and you know the, the customer base that you've built up. Yeah. So from the calibration, we have developed a modular, solid state, freely scalable thermal energy storage solution. And obviously, our means to that is a thermal battery that you also see in my background. That's one of our modules project would typically be composed of several of these modules. But it's not really about these modules. It's about bringing, bringing um, solutions or services to customers. So that's one part of it. And then, and then the question is, what do we do? And um, we started early. And we did a lot. I mean, you know, 2011, we're now in 2021. So it's 10 years old, the company. And we have closed our first projects. We are executing two projects currently. One is with um, the chemical company or fertilizer producer Yara. And the other one is with Eni, uh, Italian oil and gas company. 
Um, so, so we've come to to the path of commercializing our technology, uh, really. And fingers crossed, um, in, a, in a couple of days or weeks from now, we we sign another contract. Uh, so, so there's progress, and obviously we have a global pipeline of, of projects that we constantly mature. Now, what is the problem that we solve? The main the main problem that we are up to solving is on the one hand side to improve the carbon balance of industrial heat or process heat and on the other hand to flexibilize power generation especially in the renewables so basically um, uh, making concentrated solar power for example fully dispatchable or a new trend that we see cst so concentrated solar thermal which is industrial uh, um, uh, heat generation via via solar thermal processes to make this uh, basically also dispatchable, not only during the day when the sun shines, but also during the night with the means of our storage now. Now, it gets a bit tricky. If you look at, and, and uh, you know, there's global numbers, but um, there's a problem sometimes with getting consistent numbers. There's a study quite recent from last year on the European total energy demand. And I think it's from a study from Burr who looked at strengthening heat pumps and innovation to decarbonize industrial heat. And what is interesting is that the total energy demand in Europe um, can be decomposed into you know, some non-thermal consumption, obviously space heating and, and cooling processes, but also um, process heating. This is the industrial stuff. 66% of total energy demand in Europe is based on process heating for the industry. That's, that's a big number. And if you just think about if you can impact that, um, this is really uh, helping global decarbonization because it's such a big lever and it goes beyond you know, what we can impact on all buying electric vehicles, um, um, for example. So just for calibration. The other thing is then this process heating, the 66% that I just mentioned based on this study is largely done by by fossil fuels. So that's gas, oil, coal, or other fossils. And this needs to change. And what we offer with our solution, and now I'm basically coming back to what I originally said about our thermal battery is, um, the 66% process heating number, I think we address about 90% of this um, with our solution to decarbonize. One is addressing really the higher temperature regimes of that process heat um, is, is where we offer waste heat recovery solutions or enhanced waste heat recovery solutions. So, you know, if you take, a, let's say, pulp and paper production or steel production, you have big kilns or furnaces uh, or smelting processes that generate heat. We would enable our customers to capture this heat and then to utilize this stored energy on demand, for instance, to generate process steam down the line for batch process, etc., and not use separate natural gas-fired boilers. So clearly, uh, increase energy efficiency by harvesting the energy potential in an in a industrial facility and apply this energy as a primary energy for that customer instead of using fossil fuels to generate heat in a conventional way. That's one element. The other element, and this comes down more to lower grid heating requirements, so what I just mentioned, waste heat recovery would be typically 500 degrees C and above. On the lower heat, this would be anything from 100 to 500 degrees Celsius. We help our customers to 
for instance, either electrify the operations. So you would typically harvest um, renewable electricity, convert this into heat into our storage, and then serve uh, process uh, uh, steam grids uh, from the thermal battery to feed constantly based on renewables that you harvested at when it was available. Um, or to go for these um, newly involving CST projects um, where customers, even in Central Europe, now start utilizing solar thermal energy simply to offset natural gas production for generating industrial heat that is a bit of a lower grade. So let's say two to 300 degrees Celsius. Super exciting segment to be in. And um, this is the last thing I would like to say, Renia, is um, we really as a company, and this is also, you know, <laughs> while we're somewhat already leathernecks of the energy transition, um, I think you could call us, is no one wanted to hear this until about pretty much 18 months ago. It was always, well, the heat is not really a problem. It's all about, you know, uh, electrifying uh, uh, everything and PV and EVs will be the solution to the energy transition, but they're not. The, the the fossil fuel dedication and allocation towards industrial heat is so big that we can really have to change the system um, without really you know interrupting industrial production. And that's an important element. We don't have to go back to Stone Age just to decarbonize. We can be smart about our approaches. And industrial heat will be a big, big enabler and a big lever in getting us there and um, um, meeting and hopefully overachieving our... 1.5 degrees uh, uh, temperature saving target, uh, because what we do, uh, decarbonizing industrial heat is a big, big contributor to a decarbonized world, one of the biggest levers out there. And this is, an, I mean, this is European heat. Just put this into perspective into American heat, North American heat, Chinese heat, Indian heat. I mean, there is so much more to do. Uh, we just happen to be started in Europe. Our footprint right now is an office in Oslo, office in Hamburg, office in Seville. We grow from Europe and do the first projects here. But this on a global scale is decarbonization really on steroids. And this is where we have to get in, in, in a good way this, this time. Yeah, um, it, It's really um, um, moving the needle for decarbonization. And this is, in essence, what Energy Nest is all about. And this is why we all have such a super strong mission to push what we do. And, um, you know, be it, be, it, be it hard times or good times. Obviously, it's more fun in the good times, I have to admit. <laughs> of course. But interestingly, the, the whole terminology around thermal battery is very revealing because the whole art of decarbonization is about energy transfer. But unfortunately, sometimes the capital markets get obsessed with just one pathway, right? So electricity from renewable sources into a lithium ion or other battery to move a car. And okay, now we're completely solved in terms of, uh, you know, averting climate change. Of course we're not. There are many other pathways but um, that need to be decarbonized. And I think the elegant thing that you talked about, particularly for low-grade uh, industrial heat, is this idea of taking that same renewable energy, but now you're not converting it into motion, you're converting it into heat, storing it in a thermal battery, and then transmitting that heat to um, lower temperature industrial uses which is an incredibly elegant solution, I think, for doing pretty much the same thing as an electric vehicle. It's just that now you're going from renewable electricity through a different pathway to industrial heat uh, in low-grade applications. Yes. yes, you're absolutely right. And I think um, the capital markets are realizing this bit by bit. And you know, part of, part of this is already, you know, there's, I think, two, three weeks ago, there was an article 
um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance talking really about industrial heat. So this topic is really submerging and there's, you, you can't really deny it. It's just probably industrial heat is very hard to, you cannot touch it, you cannot feel it. It's hard to grasp, to understand, to really picture the severity of, of this issue. You know, it's not, it's not like uh, my favorite example, you know, it's not like a, a Tesla that you can take for a test drive, get in and, oh yeah, this is sexy and, um, which it is, right? And as for many other electric cars, um, they are, but you can, it's really tangible. And I think industrial heat is not really tangible and that's the problem, but I think, you know, also our investment, um, the round that we uh, successfully closed in August this year, 110 million investment by Infra Capital Partners, shows that capital markets are really going on to the next thing, which is industrial heat. And I think, you know, electricity and renewables are well understood com commodities now. Perfect, you know, um, transition that took place. Um, and and now uh, the question is what's what's next, and I think industrial heat is a big part of the answer to what's next, where we can still you know explore grounds to change things, do things new, do things differently, really be pioneers in harvesting um, uh, potential that so far ha hasn't been unlocked. Um, and and this is you know it has been a transition. And what I also see is that's number one. So capital markets yes are realizing. Number two is. When I was in, you know, we, we have been funded by um, family office largely, high net worth and, and friends and family uh, in, in the past before this big rock we just did. And I think when, when was it, 2017, um, um, you know, we, we were exploring grounds and did some interviews um, uh, with investors in, in, I think, UK and also went to Sand Hill Road in California. And, you know, we were told, oh, you need to digitize everything. Oh, your business model is not digital or your product is not digital. You're, it's not an app. So sorry, can't fund you. I'm bluntly over-exaggerating. But the notion was basically, if you don't have an app or something just digital to offer, uh, you're not hot. And everyone was shying away from hardware investments. What we see now is a complete shift. Um, and that shift is really that um, investors are starting to look for decarbonizing infrastructure projects. And that is exactly what we do. You know, we build uh, energy as a service projects um, um, or, you know, projects with a certain leasing structure. It depends always on the geography and what you can do accounting wise, et cetera. But um, we recognize the capital constraints of our industrial customers. They are not there for, um, uh, building energy infrastructure. They're there to, you know, do um, food and beverage productions or packaging or producing uh, steel pipes or alloy ingots. That's really where they're good and, you know, focus focus on quality improvement and, 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 and cost reduction, et cetera. Now, by providing our solution and enhancing their energy balance and decarbonization balance and also helping them to achieve their ESG targets, which is very important for us, helping our customers to move the needle in ESG and, and obviously by the means of decarbonization with our uh, quite you know, um, uh, safe uh, products um, is um, that we take away the, the capital constraint for allocating you know, amounts of money for these infra 
infrastructure type projects, basically saying, look, you don't have to buy this. You don't have to allocate dedicated budgets to this. And we understand that, you know, this year budget is full, next year's you have already planned, et cetera. So by offering these finance solutions now, we can talk about savings from day one with these customers. And this is an investment theme, and that's why I was making this point, is that we see more and more resonating because it's highly attractive. You have a decarbonization infrastructure. You have a customer that is you know, benefiting from this. There's contribution from these solutions. This is highly sexy infrastructure to move in. Much, I mean, what do you do also? It's, I mean, you know, uh, coal fire plants and gas fire plants are not, you know, they're, they're not hitting the theme of the times anymore. So these decarbonization projects are extremely interesting to look at. And this is something that we clearly sense. And I'm sure there's, there's many other companies out there with similar offerings. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, the time for decarbonization hardware is becoming very attractive. And obviously there's the whole notion about digital business model around it. But it, you know, that's an enabler basically then for the um, the assets that we create. Yeah, and we certainly also look at this. But I think what is helpful now is that hard hardware, if it's uh, contributing to decarbonization, is a very attractive investment scheme. We've just seen the beginning, and I think this will increase over the next few years. Being an impact entrepreneur is is really all about shaping and developing new markets, and it's a huge challenge. And what I hear you saying is you've gone about this in a rather systematic manner. You started with your customer, industrial companies making fertilizers or chemical factories or whatever it is that they make. Um, you provided a, a clear solution for them to decarbonize, which is also finance. So a bit, it's a bit like an energy savings company model from what I can understand. So what people do when they retrofit buildings, they go to the, the building uh, and they say, Look, we'll put in the, 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 the energy-efficient lighting and heating systems, and then we'll finance that, and you pay us back from a share of the, 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 the energy savings. You're taking that model and now applying it to the much bigger arena of industrial process heat, providing this finance solution. So basically, you not only solve the, the customer's technical problem, you solve their capital constraint problem. And of course... It won't be long before investors, even institutional investors, will cotton onto this and say, well, this is a, a really investable asset class. And I call it an asset class because I think that's the scale that we're talking about. Um, and it's a global asset class. So your pipeline extends from North America, Europe, all the way to Asia, uh, Australia, I believe, as well. So <laughs> literally covering the entire planet. So it's a global asset class. So I think that's a, a lesson in how to shape a global market. And if you put it in those terms, the seven to 10 years that you've been at it may sound like a long time to people, right? But this is what it, in building an impact unicorn is all about. It's not just having local impact. It's a global problem that you're solving in a systematic replicable manner. And this makes you scalable, makes you a potential unicorn. And so it's really not surprising that you were able to get that um, round of uh, funding from InfraCapital, which I think brings me to uh, the next question, because in every you know, company and every entrepreneur's journey, funding is that thorny uh, topic, which can take up a lot of time and cause a lot of sleepless nights. Um, the beauty of the market right now um, in renewable infrastructure is that fortunately, we're seeing many more channels to funding opening up. So 
you know, a few years ago, you were saying it was all about family offices. Uh, and now, you know, there are funds like Infra Capital available who can fund your project. But at some point, you also considered the IPO route right, at this relatively early stage in your, in your corporate story. So tell us a little bit about these different channels of capital and how, you know, you went about making a, a, an election for going one way versus another. Uh, because there were many sources of capital available to you as a, as a, as a potential unicorn. Absolutely, yes. And, and just to the previous point, yes, I mean, you know, it has been quite a journey since uh, 2011 when we found it. But you know what they say in the energy business, it takes uh, about 10 years to become an overnight success. So uh, I think we successfully uh, checked this, or at least uh, are starting now on a successful uh, uh, journey based on our first projects that we are just constructing. Um, but yes, funding, super important point, you know, and, and the best business idea is nothing without the right backers. And I think there's a time for, for every sort of backer. So, you know, our start wouldn't have been possible with, without family office, with dedication, high net worth people who basically believe and, and back you with resources, et cetera. And we have come from a history where probably every year we have done a funding round just to find next year's budget and see if we, you know, fulfill our targets, et cetera. And this is how we had grown our supporter bases. But now I think, and this was largely the consideration in, uh, uh, you know, throughout last year and then, you know, till this year is what is the right next step for the company? And you see two models. Um, well, now with a spec, there's three models. But in principle, you can choose to either be a private company and continue to be a private company with its pros and cons. Or you can choose to list on the public markets with its pros and cons. And um, we did explore both routes to a greater detail and really came down to a position that um, we could make a choice based on what's best for the company. And, and uh, you know, obviously there's a process element and you know, uh, uh, negotiations behind this. Uh, and, and when you come to the point where you really can switch the button, <laughs> You better make the right choice. And the question to us, we, we, we took, you know, once we were at this point where we could switch the button, we stepped back 10 steps and we said, look, what is really the right path for this company? And mind you, when I was said, you know, is, um, you know, we are 14 now, obviously expanding, but we looked at ourselves and said, what is good for this company? And we saw this IPO route and we said, it's instant capital. We can pretty much allocate the company resources with the IPO as we want. That's great for from a management perspective. Um, you you know you have a, you create an opportunity for your shareholders to sell their shares. It's a liquid market. Um, you can compare yourself to the peers who are already listed. So there's a competitive element, obviously. Um, but then comes all the cons which is about you're not really in full control because you're also subject to market sentiment markets go down you go down if markets go up you go up um, you have to create a very steady and strong news flow in order to be perceived by outside investors as sexy and investment worthy um, plus there's the whole regulatory aspect that you need to create your own overhead in order to manage being a public company. And let's just assume for, for the sake of fun of it that the valuations are about the same. 
on the stock market and you know uh, private investment and then we took the other route uh, to look at and and that was the private investment ultimately icp and and here we saw a lot of benefits compared to the public route for where we were and are as a company um, and that is you know we built infrastructure type of projects asset class was your keyword to it um, we are embarking on a commercialization um, so that means, you know, uh, yes, we have projects, we have a strong pipeline, but converting this pipeline into projects that are executed takes time. This time is, uh, you don't have news on a weekly basis for stock market news flow. So, so um, we, we need to, let's say, test our business model. What really resonates? Where do we need to change our business model? Another factor for time. So, Cut a long story short, what we really found is this company needs a probably strong partner with a very strategic interest in what we do and what we want to offer to the market. And um, um, that strategic aspect has so many benefits compared to us just being, you know, publicly listed with no strong shareholder, but, you know, free flow uh, investors buying and selling your share and us, us being on our own. So for us, um, the scale was tipping towards the point that we said, we need something more than money because the money, the funding, we can get on the stock market, but we need something more than money. We need something that helps us. And you know, with ICP, we found a shareholder that has a very strong interest in working with management and tackling the problems. This, by the way, also we are set up now. This is a structure, you know, uh, like uh, you know, uh, very frequent board meetings and working group meetings and, you know, flagging hey we need this is all expertise we would not have acquired with the ipo but rather would have to have insourced and then again the question is you know have you foreseen the fund for this insourcing what is the areas is it just one of the 10 areas where you need expertise etc so you look at something that's really eating up management time whereas when you're aligned with your investor which a fund uh, typically can be very well is there's so many synergies that you unlock all the way that I think for fast value creation in a commercialization setting, in our case, the private investment was definitely the preferred route. And already see it that you know we can keep our admin administration relatively lean and focus on business, which is really sales and engineering and project management, so delivering and all, all the rest of it, like developing the supply chain, building a strong organization, that is a focus. I think it probably would have been more difficult for our company focusing on capital markets appeal with the majority of our efforts from early on because we need to really create our business, you know, really build those incredible revenue streams that we think we can generate with our, with our customers. And until then, there's a lot of hard work and education to do. And I think the best way to be successful with this work is the most undistracted way. Uh, uh, way, really focusing on, on, on the path, on the company strategy, on the business plan, and with capital markets for us, it probably would have been significantly more difficult to set the focus, and significantly more, you know, um, distractible from a management perspective. So this is simply why, at the end of the day, having both options is really great. But for us, the choice was quite clear and easy to make. 
And it all comes down to, can you work with the people on the other end of the table? There's, you know, a strategic aspect, there's a biochemistry aspect, um, there's a, you know, there's a joint vision that you develop in these processes. And, you know, with a strong fund, I think you can, you can, you can achieve a lot. Sure, you don't have maybe possibly the, the, the glory of capital markets if things go well, but let's do the work first. Let's really deliver value to customers. Um, show how we can help being one part, a big part of the puzzle towards decarbonization. Um, and then, you know, in three, four years, whatever the time horizon is, one can always look at, okay, what is the next best strategic option for the company? But for now, I think uh, we are, have a great setup for our resources. We know everyone knows what the mission is. We can gather our people behind the plan, no distractions from left and right. And work is, you know, really hard enough. So I'm very happy that we have this uh, ability to focus, which is such a, such a, you know, beneficial position to be in when you can have the right focus just set. Still hard enough, but you know where to go. Yeah, I see the, the, the team athlete, uh, the team coach uh, thinking coming through again. So now you're not just coaching your internal people, but you're working with your customers, they're part of your team, and now you have an investor, you're bringing that subject matter expertise and you're expanding the team yes. across organizational boundaries, right? And getting that uh, chemistry to work, you know, a larger group of people, you may be 14 inside your company, but actually if you include your lead customers, your investors, you're much bigger than that. And yeah. getting that, that entire team focused behind this, this mission and realizing the vision is giving that multiplicative effect, which you described as addictive, and you know, I can certainly see that. Um, and perhaps a little bit further down the road, you have the next stage of the market shaping and development, which is to go maybe um, to the, the public capital markets and start building that story so you begin to capture the public imagination uh, as well and make this potentially the next Tesla. Because you know when you're going through that scaling journey, the, the capital injections don't come in linear lumps. It doesn't increase linearly. As you've seen, it's, it's, it's quite exponential. So perhaps to get the, the next uh, slug of capital, and it's not 100, it's several hundred million or even ha ha larger. And that may take story building, news flow, um, and public imagination to get there. But one step at a time, I guess. Exactly. One step at a time. Um... We now have, uh, I think, a bit of time to really um, uh, bring on our business case and be successful. But there's one part of public attention that I do wish for uh, uh, sooner, and that that is not really the you know public capital markets, but really the that the public becomes more receptive to what what levers we can influence now in order to have a big harvest on decarbonization. And, you know, it's um, uh, personally, I ride my bike. We have a small electric car for the city that we utilize when we go, you know, buying larger chunks of groceries and, 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 and you know, commuting in city when necessary, et cetera. But um, decarbonization is not all about PV panels on a private house. Uh, it's not just about, you know, the next offshore wind park. It's not about only infrastructure charging infrastructure for electric vehicles there's more to this and tackling the heat market and the vast you know uh, amounts of fossil fuel still in go still going into this industrial heat market um, um, 
and decarbonizing this. This is really the next the next big step. And and I wish for some more public awareness, which is a call to media really and policymakers to recognize this. And I, you know I think well, our our answer to this, and this is really you know the first real milestone in terms of public awareness that I hope for way way before the next you know sort of capital funding etc. Is really that there is recognition for yes we have a big topic here. It's actually a problem how we fire our industrial world at this stage, but at the same time, we can start healing this problem and enable our, you know, industrial landscape, which is a big, big contributor to, to, to public wealth, jobs, everything, growth, technology, that we can give them the tools at hand um, to, to decarbonize while um, not just keeping their operations, but improving their operations, becoming more efficient, more, more cost-intensive. And, and this is really, the media needs to talk about this. Uh, largely, they still do not do that. So big call to media. And second, policymakers. Because, you know, on the one hand side, I'm a big fan of rising CO2 prices and, and us, you know, paying tax for carbon emissions. On the other hand, you can't just tax the hell of everyone. So I think while we increase taxes for CO2 emitters, governments must offer incentives for those who transition into a clean future. So it's really more about shifting capital, right? Yes, taxing the bad habits from yesterday, but incentivizing the move towards the new solutions for tomorrow, or actually today it is. Um, so that people or that people and companies can transition without really, you know, having no foundation for economical business. And, you know, we just had elections uh, yesterday in Germany. I hope that our new government um, sets much stronger impulses and a clear direction towards this path. And we see in some countries, for instance, Netherlands, who do a fantastic job and in incentivizing really projects with a big uh, 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 carbon uh, payback or you know carbon reduction logic going forward. So I think this is the way to go um, for industrials really to um, to stay within Europe and not just to one abroad, whilst transitioning to become carbon neutral. You know, as one of these many ESG aspects that are so important for us to really create a better tomorrow. Well, with the IPCC report that just came out a few weeks ago, just reaffirming what we already know, that we have a very short fuse to solve the decarbonization problem, this kind of awareness building and, and policy support and regulatory engagement is going to be so critical. So I think there's plenty for us to talk about in, in future shows, uh, future episodes. I'd love to have you back again. Uh, Christian, it's been wonderful talking to you, but for now, uh, let's say uh, adieu and uh, um, wish you the best of luck in building your pipeline and getting your European Champions League team to be firing on all cylinders to deliver. A great, uh, great story here. Thank you so much for your time. If you've enjoyed this episode of Impact Unicorns, don't forget to rate and review this show by scrolling down and clicking rate this podcast. And join me next week as I talk to more inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies.